Well, good morning. You can go ahead and begin opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about something for a moment. If I were to ask you or you were to ask the person next to you if they wanted less anxiety and more peace in their life, how do you think they would answer or how would you answer? I think there's very few persons who would turn down such an offer. But the next question would be how? How do I have less anxiety and more peace? How do I worry less? Well, the answer, the answer to this question is it's really not that complicated. But it's one that's not easy to put into practice. It's not one where we necessarily like the answer that's given. Because it fights against our natural inclination for self-preservation and for comfort. To help answer it, as we look at answering it this morning, let me ask you another question, which is, what is the opposite of anxiety or worry? You might say peace. And that's not entirely wrong, but I would really look at peace as more of the, the outcome, where, whereas anxiety, uh, you know, with anxiety and worry, or the opposite is trust. Anxiety and worry create a lack of peace, so what is it that creates peace? It's trust. A child can go from fear or anxiety to calm in a moment when they have a parent who they love and they trust nearby? Really, the answer for us for less anxiety is learning to trust God. And again, that may sound simple, and you may say, what's so hard about that? And we'll talk about that this morning. The question really becomes, again, how? How do I learn to do this, and why is it so hard for me to trust God? Ultimately, we struggle to trust God because we don't know Him well enough, or we haven't learned well enough how to trust Him. You see, our trust, whether it be in persons or in God, is directly related to what we know about them and to the experiences that have shown us them, the person, or in this case, God, to be trustworthy. This morning, we're going to observe further instructions Jesus provides to His apostles as He sends them on their mission. As He's preparing them, and He's been preparing them for ministry, and He's now sending them on this mission. And these instructions are aimed at creating trust. Trust specifically in God for their needs. And then as we observe them, as we look at these this morning, there are important lessons and implications for us in how we can develop trust in the provision of God. You see, the trust that they were to learn was also one they were to demonstrate to the people to whom they went and ministered. And as they've been recorded for us, we have much to learn as well as we see this trust that they are told to place in God and to watch as God provides. So read along with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Our study this morning will be verses 9 through 15, but we'll back up to verse 5 for a little bit more context. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. But rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. 
Do not acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Let's pray as we begin our study this morning. Father, as we look at these instructions that you gave through your son to these apostles so many years ago, Father, may we look at them with a desire to learn and to understand how they apply to us today, certainly through implication, through the lessons that you were teaching them, the similar lessons that we have to learn today. Father, as it specifically relates to our trust in you, help us to apply these things in our life. That we would, do, just like these disciples were to demonstrate it to the world around them, that we would demonstrate that same peace and trust that comes from knowing you to the world around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Matthew continues the theme that was introduced last week. Really, we're the ones who broke it up, not Matthew, as we're going slowly through studying. But we continue to pick up on this theme regarding freely offering the message of the kingdom of God. The apostles, as they went out, they were not to charge for their services, whether it be the performing of miracles or in the preaching of the message itself. These things were to be freely given as foretastes of the kingdom promises and the reversal of the effects of the curse of sin on the world. Well, Jesus is now further separating the ministry of the apostles from those other travelers, as we noted. There are plenty of people who traveled around during that time, who some of them as philosophers, some as actors, some as those who promised healing, who would charge for their services or charge the hearing or expect to be paid or manipulate persons into giving up their wealth. Those same types of persons exist today. But Jesus wants to further differentiate the ministry of these apostles from those types of persons. He also wants this ministry to clearly testify to the power of God. And Jesus does this by identifying not only the lack of payment they are to demand or manipulate, but the complete trust they are to put upon God for their provision. They are not only to avoid seeking to acquire wealth or to charge for their services, but they're also to rely upon God through the generosity of others. You can see from these passages and others, Jesus is not opposed to others supporting them. He's opposed to, one, any form of manipulation or demand for payment. And secondly, any accumulation of wealth that minimizes the dependence of the apostles upon the providence of God. So that's what he wants to make clear to help differentiate in these first few verses. Because unlike the charlatans of Jesus' day and before and after, who promise healing, who promise blessing if you only give to their ministry or pay them for their services, Jesus says, do no such thing. You receive these powers and this authority freely. Don't use them as a means of self-aggrandizement or accumulation of wealth. 
And so in the verses we're looking at this morning, in verses 9 through 15, Jesus provides instructions for these 12 apostles that both teach them to trust God for provision. Okay, I've told you not to demand any payments. And the next thing, the question that comes into their mind, well, then how are we to live? How are we to survive? I know this is only a few weeks, but we could still starve to death. So how are we going to survive? Well, rather than saying, take plenty of money or use what you, you know, bring plenty of provision, Jesus goes the opposite direction and says, take nothing extra. In fact, leave now, don't go home and grab anything else. That's in essence what he is saying here. One commentator writes, not only must the apostles not profit, profit commercially from their powers, they must go further, traveling in a, in a state that will make visible a trust in God and God alone for their needs each and every day. Verses 9 through 10 provide the first set of instructions, and as we can see, they are, again, thematically related to the end of verse 8, and that they concern personal provision. We read, they're not to acquire wealth, gold, silver, copper for their money belts. And really it means if you've got some stored at home, don't go grab it and take it with you. You are not going to need it. Don't acquire a bag for your journey. Don't acquire two tunics or sandals or a staff. And these items, just as a comprehensive list, summarize what would be needed for a safe and comfortable journey. The gold, silver, copper would have been used to pay for lodging, for food, for other basic provisions as necessary. The bag was a general reference to any form of bag that a traveler might carry. It could be something from a beggar's purse to a traveler's knapsack to what we might equate to luggage. The point was, don't carry anything extra. Nothing at all. The reference to two tunics, or some translations may say coats. The word here is better translated as a tunic, which is really somewhat equivalent to our word for a shirt. In other words, don't, don't even get a second shirt. This was a, the tunic was worn close to the skin, like shirts today. It would have been nice to have had a second one. In fact, Josephus describes persons sometimes wearing two tunics, likely when it was cold outside and wanting to stay warm or stay comfortable. Or maybe it was just to have a clean one. Either way, Jesus forbids an additional one. And it shows not only the reliance upon God and that if, if you need it, he'll provide, but also the urgency of this mission. There's, there's no time to go grab anything else. I'm sending you on a mission. You need to leave now. And really, that's true of all these things. And again, notice what Jesus says. He says, do not acquire. That is, do not add to what you currently have is the meaning there. Don't go and get these things. Don't stop. Much like the man who came to him and said, first I need to go bury my mother and father. Jesus is saying, no, for the disciple, for the, this mission and this ministry, there's no time for additional preparation. This, what I am sending you on is so urgent, you need to leave this very instance with whatever you have with you. Jesus also says, no sandals or staff. Since Jesus uses the word acquire, it's likely he's saying don't go get an extra pair of sandals in case the thong of the sandal breaks or maybe they were close to wearing thin. He says don't worry about it. Well, it's possible he wants them to go barefoot as some of the poorest of the land do. That's unlikely what he's telling them here. He's probably not telling them they would have been wearing sandals. 
almost for sure where he's talking to him. He's not telling him, take off your sandals and go barefoot. I guess it's not impossible that he's saying that, but it's unlikely because the point here wasn't to make a show of impoverishment as if I am the poorest of the poor of the land and I can't even afford sandals. The point was don't take anything extra. Trust on God to provide for what you need. Just like the Israelites who wandered the wilderness without their clothes wearing out or their soles of their sandals wearing out for 40 years, God will provide. Regarding the staff, this was a means of protection. And again, because it's in the list of things not to go and acquire, it's possible that some of the apostles had staffs while others did not. Regardless, don't go get, don't go stop and go get one if you don't have one. And if you have one, don't go get another one. Either a different one or a better one. The staff was used to fight off wild animals and to fight off or deter robbers as you traveled to keep you safe. It was a means of protection. Again, though, we see the urgency of not going to acquire anything beyond what they already have. And secondly, when it comes to their safety and their protection, to rely on God to provide for that. All of these things, this list, this whole description, every bit of this is teaching them and emphasizing that when you go out on this mission, one, it is urgent, two, you are going to have to trust God. The specificity of the instructions highlight that these particular instructions apply only to this mission. In fact, some of the instructions are reversed in later missions. Some of these things are actually required in later missions. But except for where explicitly repeated, barring any repetition, they are specific to this mission. But why does Jesus give these instructions? Well, the answer is found at the end of verse 10 where it says the worker is worthy of his support. Jesus wants to teach these disciples to trust God and to rely upon God for their provision and care. The worker here are the apostles. You remember Jesus had looked out at the end of chapter 9, seeing the lost sheep of Israel, specifically those in Galilee, and he said, exhorting all of the disciples the 70-plus group, to pray that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest. And so God, through His Son, Jesus, sends out these workers. These are God's workers. This is in direct answer to the disciples' prayer. And so they're the workers who are employed by God, and it is God who is seen as the agent who is now going to provide through whatever agency He chooses to use on this earth. In this case, He's primarily going to use other persons, as we see in the subsequent verses. And as one commentator notes, the disciples are workmen for God, and they can rely on their employer to supply the things that they need. As a result, not only were they able to distinguish themselves, to differentiate themselves from the greed-driven false prophets and traveling philosophers of the day, but now this was also an opportunity to testify and to live a testimony and demonstrate what they had learned from the Sermon on the Mount concerning praying daily for the Lord's provision, as well as later in chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and not worrying about what tomorrow will provide because today has enough worries of its own. Jesus was in essence saying, okay, I've taught you this lesson, now it's time for you to put it into practice, and in so doing you will teach others how to put this into practice. 
It's likewise an opportunity for them to grow in their faith and trust in the Lord for the provision that would suit them throughout their lives and in the missions to come. While this was only a brief mission of a few weeks, likely never more than a day or two from where Jesus was as they traveled around Galilee, later missions would be of a greater distance and ultimately at Jesus' ascension, they would be sent out into the world. Again, we talked about a couple weeks, the extent and the breadth of the ministry of these apostles prior to, in almost every single case, their martyrdom. They went throughout most of the world. And God does this with all disciples. He gives greater and greater responsibility, a lot of times through greater and greater trials, in teaching and instructing as we grow It helps us to grow, to increase our faith and our trust and our confidence in the promises and provisions that God has for us. This is what I meant earlier when I said we may not like the answer for how we have less anxiety and more peace. It actually comes through trials. Because it's in trials that we learn to trust. We have a very hard time learning trust any other way than in a difficult circumstance. Because trust or the need for trust, rarely arises except for difficult circumstances and trials. And so it's in those that we learn how to trust. And in order to grow our trust and increase our confidence in God, we need greater and greater trials in our life. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I don't think there's many of us who would say, I'm ready for the greater and harder trial. We're trying to survive the one we're in the midst of now. As one pastor once I heard say once, you're either in the midst of, going into, or coming out of a trial. But the need is, the reason is, is because your faith needs to grow. Your confidence needs to grow. Your trust in God needs to grow. This is for our good. One of the greatest blessings that trials and difficulties bring for believers is less anxiety later in life. The more opportunities we have to see God work in difficult and hard situations, the more confidence we have that he will deliver us from our present difficulty. The problem is we're forgetful people. And one of the greatest hindrances to faithful ministry by disciples of Jesus Christ is worry and anxiety. And this has been true from the beginning. Jesus continually returns, and his teaching even to his own disciples continually returns to the topic of anxiety and worry throughout the Gospels. Continually returns to that topic. And Jesus continues to provide opportunities for his disciples to grow in their trust. You see that as he gives them greater and greater missions, more important missions. And so as he begins to teach them these lessons, lessons that they need to grow in their trust, it's an important implication for us is that this is a lesson that every disciple of Jesus Christ needs. And we need it over and over again throughout our lives. Just by way of illustration, last week our youngest Eden was with my wife and while they were walking together, Eden stopped to watch something. And my wife kept going and got a little ways away from her, never out of sight. Eden looked up and mom wasn't there. She began to panic. She thought she was in imminent danger and her life was at an end. Starts, dart, eyes dart around, wondering, where's mom? This isn't good, this isn't safe, it's dangerous. She was never out of Elisa's sight. 
Elise went back to her. The relief that came over Eden was so great that she wanted to hold on to Elise the rest of that morning. Didn't want to let go again. Eden was never in danger. And yet she was still very much afraid and worried. She was never even out of Elise's sight. I think we are often like Eden. We're quickly and easily unsettled, perhaps even terrified by our present circumstances. And most often it's because we lose sight of who God is. We lose sight of God. Like Peter, who got out of the boat to walk across the water to Jesus, when did he start sinking? When he took his eyes from the Savior. And it was at that moment that the fear comes on and he begins to sink and he cries out, Lord, help me. It's the same in every one of our circumstances where we struggle, where we're anxious, where we're worried. doesn't mean those circumstances are less real, but we can have peace in the midst of them to get us through them. But as the hymn goes, we have to turn our eyes upon Jesus. This will wax and wane throughout our lives, but we are far too easily shaken from our current situation our personal situations, whether it be because we look at the news around us or whether it's because of events going on in our personal lives. And the reason is almost always centered on having lost sight of our Heavenly Father. The circumstances suddenly become bigger than our perspective of God. Having momentarily forgotten His sovereignty, His provision, His blessing, and His care for us, we become anxious. We become worried. So what should we do? Turn our eyes to our Savior. However, our response is more often to exert our own efforts, isn't it? To try and solve the problem ourselves when we're encountered with problems. We try to fix it by relying on our own strength, our own power, our own resources to create peace, safety, and security. Because we want peace, safety, and security. Wanting it's not wrong. It's where you go for it that's the problem. And yet as long as our safety, our peace are created by us, in our own strength, it's nothing but a facade. And we we know this. It's like those old Western movie sets where you go through the town and it looks like a real town, but behind those front facades are nothing. Or like sticking electrical tape over the warnings on the dashboard of your car, you haven't really solved the problem. The peace isn't real. It still nags at you in the back of your mind. You're still anxious, even though it looks like it should be okay, because I did it. I mean, think about it. Why is it those with significant wealth still never think it's enough? They're still anxious. They don't have the peace that supposedly the world tells us money will bring. Scripture provides an answer to why this is. It does this in a number of different places. In Psalm 127, in fact, you can turn there, it does this with several different metaphors right on top of one another. It begins, the first metaphor there, and I'll read the passage in a moment after you turn there, but the first metaphor is of a home. A home, the image and the thought of what a home is, is one of the oldest metaphors for peace, safety, and security, isn't it? If you think about going home, it's a place where you should find peace. It's a place where you should be able to relax. It's a place of safety. Psalm 127, 1 through 2, we read, Unless the Lord builds the house, 
that is the place of safety, the place of security. In vain, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. That is, it's useless. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. This is not a passage against hard work. It's against hard work that doesn't rely upon God for the outcome. It's a prohibition against trying to manufacture success, to manufacture peace, to manufacture security on your own. Because no matter how hard you try to do it, it will always be that facade. Unless the Lord is the one who builds it. So do you want real, do you want lasting peace? It must come from the Lord. And so do you pray for the Lord's provision before trying to work something out or fix it on your own? If not, learn to pray. Return to the Sermon on the Mount that we've studied for so many weeks. Pray daily for your provision. Make it a habit. Watch the Lord multiply your efforts and bring the results that are needed and brings those necessities. There's another important point of application for us today from these verses and observing what Jesus teaches his disciples. And this, this particular mission that we're looking at of these apostles was relatively brief, as we noted. It was only going to last for a few weeks. Jesus will send these disciples out on other missions, culminating in what we refer to ultimately, it's the Great Commission prior to his ascension. And the specifics of the instructions belong to the apostles for this mission. Our, our application today is not to make sure that we no longer carry wallets or purses or bags or extra shirts or have extra shoes in the closet. That is not our application today, this morning. But rather note that these disciples were obedient in forsaking basic necessities and provisions that anybody in their right mind would take on a trip. Instead, choosing to obediently rely upon God for their mission. They were still diligent and worked hard, but they trusted on God for the provision of their needs, in this case, often through persons. You know, I look at that, I look at the example of the apostles and their willingness to give up even the basic necessities of life, and I look at my own life, and I look at many in the church today, and I think rather than struggling to give up with the necessities, we're not even close to that, we're still struggling to give up the niceties. These niceties of life that sometimes hinder us from fulfilling our mission because we get so distracted with them. We're willing to be obedient as long as we can be comfortable too. We're willing to fulfill our mission if we have everything we need and want taken care of first. The question to ask yourself is this, are you willing to give up not only the niceties, but at times even the necessities of life if that's what it takes to faithfully fulfill whatever mission and ministry God has placed before you. I'm not saying you have to leave here and empty your bank account or get rid of all spare clothing. This morning I'm simply asking, are you willing? Are you really willing? Can you honestly say you are willing to give up whatever is necessary to follow Christ and minister in the place that he has currently placed you or he may be calling you to? If you're not sure of your answer, then I encourage you to begin praying about it. First and foremost, let's start there, because your own efforts aren't going to achieve anything. 
But then in prayer and in response and out of that prayer, there's some practical things you can begin doing. And there's other places in Scripture that call us to do that, which is simply deny yourself. Just make practical steps at denying yourself. I still remember a gentleman who was so influential in discipling me early on in my Christian life and Christian walk, and he said that he would build up the practice of denying himself with things as simple as saying, I'm not going to have dessert. There's nothing wrong with it. It's tasty. It's good. You know, it's... But today, I'm just going to choose not to have it to practice denying myself. And there were little things in different areas of his life where he would do that purely. There was nothing wrong with doing, partaking of those things, but just purely doing it for self-discipline and to practice denying yourself. Doing it when it's not required, because that's when it's harder. Don't wait till you can't have dessert. Do it when you could have had it. Perhaps it's choosing not to, saying no to a new outfit or new shoes or deciding to make do with the vehicle you have a bit longer if it's safe and still works. There are any number of ways you can do this and practice self-denial and discipline. And doing this in order that you might work on eliminating distraction to ministry and mission in your life, knowing I can deny myself these things. I was reminded this week in conversation Actually, two separate conversations reminded me of this, of a pastor from the former USSR that I met over 20 years ago. There was one particular statement that has stuck with me all this time. Having lived through persecution and the austerity and the deprivation of communism, having been in America for a couple of weeks, he said, I don't know how you can be a Christian in America. And his reason for this statement was that he says we have too much. Too much stuff and there are too many things to distract us and compete for our attention and make us comfortable and unwilling to suffer hardship and go without for the sake of the gospel. Now it is possible to be a Christian in America, but I think that warning is well taken. And it, we should bear it in mind. As faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to prepare ourselves to follow the example of these apostles who did not hesitate or vacillate when they were called to go out and preach the gospel while giving up the basic necessities of life. We could probably stop here this morning. There's already a lot to apply from just the implications of their going in those two verses that arise from the reasons and the purpose found in Jesus' instructions to his apostles. But let's go just a little bit further this morning. Looking at verse 11. In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. I find this instruction just interesting. Here Jesus provides particular instruction that will relate to how God will provide for them. In other words, there are numerous ways God could have provided. He sent manna and quail to the Israelites in the wilderness. He sent ravens with food to Elijah when he was hiding in a cave. A few chapters later in Matthew 14, we'll observe as Jesus feeds thousands of persons with five loaves and two fish. But here, for this mission, God's primary intention is to use persons, here described as worthy persons, within the towns and villages to provide basic provisions, and likewise, their homes will serve as a base of ministry within each town or village. 
In the Gospels and even the early church, you find that while some ministry takes place in the public square or synagogue, most of the training and instruction takes place in homes which served as meeting places. Peter's house was used for this. We saw that several weeks ago. It was used for this purpose, and it held, it held a significant number of persons. So the use of a home, it wasn't intended to limit the size of the audience. They had crowds in that home. But it was a practical place from which to minister, where food could easily be prepared. They could go all day. Shade could be found from the heat of the sun. Seating was available, and persons would know where to come back the next day to hear and to be instructed. So this reference to a house was a recognition that this would be a base of ministry. And it's, they needed to find one when they entered each town. They weren't to go to the public square, but to the homes of one of the city's citizens. And which home were they to choose? One with a worthy owner or occupant. Well, that solves it for us, right? Now, what does that mean? What does it mean a worthy person? Well, the term for worth or worthy carries really, here in the Greek, the same connotation we would use today when we talk about something being worthy. But even then, the worth of something, in order to determine its worthiness, we really have to know what standard we're using to measure it by, don't we? For example, a plastic bag is worthy of being used from everything from trash, trash to storage. However, if you're about to propose, you don't put a diamond ring in a plastic bag. I hope not. Similarly, you don't typically eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and chips on fine china. Why? Because the fine china has far greater worth and is worthy to be used for fine meals. Conversely, you don't go to a fancy restaurant and have your meal prepared on paper plates. They're not worthy of the meal. So in order to understand the measure of worth, we need to think of what's being offered by these apostles. They're proclaiming the message of the Messiah, the offer of the kingdom of God, the hope of heaven and eternity. They are preaching repentance and confession of sin. They were thus to find a citizen whose character and reputation would not undermine this message. It's likely would have been one who had already heard the message and the teaching of either John the Baptist or Jesus. Remember, Jesus had been going around for a while. Crowds had been coming to him, coming and going. John the Baptist had been ministering for a few years previously. Persons had been coming and going with him. So it's likely a person who had already demonstrated not only receptivity to the message, but whose character matched the message of repentance. While Jesus was certainly a friend of sinners and he would dine with them and speak with them and care for them, when it came to the base of operations and the platform for his preaching, notice that he used homes of those who were also likewise worthy. We already talked about Peter, who eagerly received the message, became one of the disciples and was sent out as an apostle. We see him with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, continually returning to their home in Bethany. When it came time for the Passover supper before his betrayal, death, burial, and resurrection, he sent two disciples into town to find a particular home, one that was worthy of this special event hosting this significant meal. And this worth, then, is tied, like we said, to the receptivity to the message and a character that matches it. It wasn't zeal they were looking for. It wasn't an ability to communicate. It wasn't based on the homeowner's leadership abilities. 
It isn't how wealthy they are, how prominent of a business they have. It's based on their worthiness. That is their spiritual and moral character. Notice as well that they are to seek out one home that will fit for their base of operations. They're not to move from house to house looking for better accommodations or showing partiality. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, put Jesus' instructions to the apostles this way. You are intentionally to seek out honorable persons. You are not then to move from house to house looking constantly for better fare, which would vex those who would be receiving you and give you the reputation of gluttony and self-indulgence. Now, in verses 12 through 15, having found a worthy person, how they went, at, went about finding them is a little bit of a mystery to us, right? They, they entered the town. Perhaps they asked at the city gates, do you know of anyone who followed the message of John the Baptist or who has been out to see Jesus? And they began searching until they found this person. But having found them, look in verses 12 through 15, what they would do when they would come to their house. In verse 12, they are to give it a greeting and blessing of peace. Well, we'll see here in a moment what happens if that person ultimately proves to be hypocritical with regard to their profession of receptivity to the message of Christ. The apostles who enter the town don't wait for that. They don't wait to judge them before offering this blessing of peace. The very first thing they do is they assume the best at this point based on the, the character that they've heard about from others, and they give it this blessing of peace. As Carson notes, Potiphar's household was blessed because of Joseph's presence. How much more those homes that harbored the apostles of the Messiah. The second half of verse 13, however, does highlight for us that there will be some who, though they presented an appearance of moral and spiritual character in line with the message, ultimately demonstrate a hardness of heart and rejection of the gospel and even the messengers themselves. Jesus tells the apostles in verse 13 to, at that point, take back their blessing. Now, what does that look like? I mean, I already said it. How do you take back a blessing? Well, verse 14 goes on to describe what the, he means by take back the blessing. And ultimately, you offer a curse. If a home or village does not accept the message or the messengers, then they are not to continue spending time there, casting their pearls before swine, but they're to go on. But before going on, they are to pronounce judgment against the home, its occupants, and the village. Verse 14 could be translated as either shake the dust off your feet, or it could be, and I think it's more likely, shake off the cloud dust of your feet. That is, shake off from your garments the dust that your feet created. In Nehemiah, we see this is exactly what they do when they would shake off their garments as a form of symbolically proclaiming judgment. Nehemiah 5.13, Nehemiah says, I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from the, his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they promised the Lord, then the people did according to this promise. It was a sign of judgment from the Lord. It was a sign of separation from the Lord. The apostles performed this action of shaking off their sandals or garments later in Acts. In Acts 13.51 and Acts 18.6 as they pronounced separation and judgment. In Acts 13.51 we read, But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. 
Acts 18.6, But then they resisted and blasphemed. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. This was an act done when entering the temple, the shaking off of one's garments and the, the dust that had been created. It was to symbolize that even though you were coming from Israel, Israel, the, the, the land of Israel was still cultically unclean. It hadn't been purified. So before I enter the temple, I need to shake off what is unclean. Some of the rabbis before and after Jesus would encourage their people to symbolically shake the dust off their garments or off their sandals when they would leave Samaria and re-enter Israel. Remember, Galilee, you've got to travel through Samaria to get to southern part of Israel. And so on your way, you're picking up the unclean dust of the Gentiles, so shake it off when you re-enter the land. And they would do this as a way of symbolically saying that they are unclean. We want nothing to do with those Gentiles, those Samarians. Jesus here isn't referring to that rabbinic tradition, but to the overall just tradition and symbolism that was associated with shaking out of one's garments as a sign of separation or a sign of judgment against someone. And so what is that judgment? What is it that reverses the blessing? Is it just simply, okay, now you're not going to be blessed, you're going to return to the state you were? No. It's far worse than that, as we see in verse 15. Jesus says, for those, and you can read into this, to whom you apply this cursing, this shaking out of the garments, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those persons. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, you may remember, were the cities of the plain or part of the cities of the plain where Lot, Abraham's nephew, lived. They were incredibly wicked cities. And God intended and set out to wipe them off from the face of the earth. In fact, if you go to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and leading up to it, you may remember that Abraham was sitting there and got visited by three visitors, one of whom is described as the angel of the Lord, which is almost certainly a reference to what we call the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus before he took on human flesh. That angel of the Lord is translated messenger of Yahweh, Anytime you see that in the Old Testament, this angel of the Lord, it is almost always certainly a reference to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. But Abraham had a meeting with these three visitors, probably two angels and Jesus. And while we'll have to save the details for another time, Abraham made his appeal on the behalf of Lot, wanting to save Lot from that same devastation and judgment that was coming. He knew, Abraham knew how wicked these cities were. He wanted to save Lot. It was interesting. He bargained with the Lord, if you will. He kept asking him, okay, if you can find this many, if you can find this many, if you can find this many persons, will you spare the cities? Thinking that surely there's enough with Lot and his family for just this amount. Jesus then is all too familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, having seen it with his own eyes. Abraham's pleadings and prayers were answered to the extent that Lot and his family were spared, even though Sodom and Gomorrah were not, that is, except for his wife, right? You know the story. They were told to flee quickly into the night and not look back. And his wife, looking back out of disobedience, showing her identification with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, not God, was turned to a pillar of salt. 
God, that night rained fire and brimstone down upon the cities, wiping them from the face of the earth. We still don't know where Sodom and Gomorrah were today. There's guesses. Some think they're under the Dead Sea, but we don't know for sure. Their destruction became a symbol of God's judgment in the Old Testament, used frequently by the prophets. So what is Jesus implying? Well, one commentator notes he's not saying, or the saying that Jesus makes is not designed to hold out hope somehow for Sodom and Gomorrah. Rather, it's to suggest that the present situation created by the coming of Jesus means that what is involved in rejecting his messengers and his message is much more serious than even the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. This, by the way, takes us back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago about the need for us to have compassion for persons who reject the ministry and even reject the messengers. As we're proclaiming the gospel of God, there will be times of persecution. There will be times where we are slandered. We need to put on hearts of compassion because what they have done is incurred for themselves the wrath of Sodom and Gomorrah unless they repent. As D.A. Carson notes, for the disciples to do this to Jewish homes and Jewish towns would be a symbolic way of saying that the emissaries of Messiah now view these places as pagan, polluted, and liable for judgment. And the implications from this judgment are profound, specifically in what it means about who Christ is. In other words, the judgment is proportionate to the offense. If the judgment that will befall those persons and towns that reject the message of Christ surpasses that of Sodom and Gomorrah, who were exceedingly wicked, then how great must be the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ? A judgment hasn't lessened in our day. If you are here this morning and have rejected Christ, refused to repent and turn from your sin, then that is the judgment that awaits you unless you repent. There's no other alternative. But there is mercy at the cross. God sent Jesus for this very reason, to save you from your sins, to deliver you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the question is, will you repent this morning and turn from your bondage to sin? Until you do, until you find peace with God, you will never find peace and freedom from anxiety on this earth. And what awaits you in eternity is far worse than any lack of peace you have now. As we conclude our study this morning, I want to return to the theme of peace and anxiety and worry. Because even as believers, even as disciples of Jesus Christ, even Jesus' disciples who were with him struggled with this. We see it in the boat. We see it when they're looking for food at different times. Over and over again, you see them raising up concerns and difficulties. These trials that Jesus takes them through to build up their faith. And so I really shouldn't say if you struggle with this. I should probably say when you struggle with this. You need to remember that your anxiety and your lack of peace is tied to a lack of trust. So how do you trust? It's to remember. We've said that already. Remember how God has provided. We are so quick to forget, so prone to overlook the good and only remember the bad. We focus on the negative very easily. We can find the problems in any situation. It's finding the solutions or seeing the good in them that is so much harder and takes so much more effort. 
So we need to stop. We need to take time to remember how God has provided for us in the past. God takes us through trials so that we would learn to trust him. James says that, right? The beginning of James. Consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of any kind, knowing that the testing of your faith develops endurance. Endurance for what? To endure and to get past the anxiety, to be able to make it through the difficulties by looking to Jesus, to not have the anxiousness, the worry that comes with these things. doesn't mean that the situation might not be hard. It might not mean that there's not times of tears. But even in the midst of that, even when there's real pain, we can know God's faithfulness. We know that he takes us through trials so that we will learn to trust him. He does this because our greatest happiness is in trusting him and delighting in him and knowing that he cares for us. These trials drive us back to him. And that is the best and safest place for us. So whenever we are tempted to cry out, How long, O Lord, when experiencing suffering and despair, let us remember that these trials are designed to sanctify us and to teach us to trust And let us learn, as Charles Spurgeon said, to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for the lessons that are learned. Thank you for the example of these apostles here and the ministry they went out and performed. Father, help us to deny ourselves. Help us to lay everything aside as we consider the cross, as we consider the ministry before us. Father, at different times, you will call us to greater levels of self-denial, greater levels of uncomfortableness. Father, let us just continually learn to trust you. Let us not despise the situation you've currently placed us in or the trial you've brought to us but to give you thanks for it for what it teaches us and in so doing grant to us the peace that you have promised and the security that you've promised an understanding of the love and the warmth of your presence that you've promised for those that do not know you lord i pray that you would bring conviction upon their hearts that you would help them to understand the severity of where they currently stand, of the imminent doom that awaits them, that they would in turn call upon you as Savior, finding mercy at the cross, that they would know the love and the comfort and the peace that you offer. Father, we pray all these things this morning in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.